Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today is Mike Smith. You can connect with Mike at his website, huddleadvisory.com, his podcast, Out of Our League, and his LinkedIn and Twitter page, all of which are linked in the show notes. And additionally, as you probably know, I donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice. And Mike has selected the Philadelphia Eagles Autism Foundation for this episode, which is also linked in the show notes. Please join me in donating. Now, why is this conversation for you? Mike has over 25 years of experience in the sports and entertainment industries, and sports was my first love as a child. I've always been absolutely fascinated by the way that teams operate and how strong cultures are built in sports. And for example, in the NFL, the New England Patriots have been the gold standard of what it means to be a strong culture, strong franchise in sports. And I'm really interested in how that would translate into other work cultures. Like there's something about sports that feels really applicable to all organizations and all work cultures. And Mike understands a lot of the through lines. So we talk about some of those in this conversation. One of them is around feedback. Feedback is something that is instrumental to improvement in performance and is something that is sorely missing in a lot of organizations and cultures. So we talk about how to have these challenging conversations. How do we get feedback and hear things that we don't want to hear so that we can ultimately improve and be the best versions of ourselves? We talk about one of the foundations and core tenets of improvement at work, and that is trust and psychological safety, which are foundational for every relationship. Let's be honest. It's not just around work, but we talk about how to establish trust and psychological safety and why it's just so important to have that if we are going to have strong cultures and strong organizations. And we get into some complexities as well. So things like understanding the systems that we are operating in, understanding the diversity of the room, and really honoring all of the different voices, and seeing how the structures influence us. If we are blind to the way that we are influenced by structures, then we can't really make changes. And so this is why Mike with all of his experience, and he's additionally taken many courses. He's certified in things like emotional intelligence, NBI, DISC assessment. All of this makes him an incredible executive coach and leadership coach and understander of people. So I think that you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. Even if you don't like sports, this is really applicable to anyone who's trying to have a better experience at work and a better experience of your life. With all of that said, let's go ahead and settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy what Mike has for us right now. Hello, Mike. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. We get a, a double dose today, I guess. 
<laughs> I think so. I think we're, someone said to me that I mentioned I was going to be on a podcast with another person named Mike. And uh, it's sort of like, we're both mic'd up. Like that sort of is the, <laughs> the, 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 the way to say it, but thanks for having me and super excited to search for meeting today. Can't wait. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to exploring with you. And as you know, I, I like to start the conversation, just understanding a little bit about what you were like as a child. And, and one of the ways, one of my on-ramps into that is asking, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? What, uh, what an amazing question. Like I, I'm generally curious how you came up with that question. Cause it's, it's such a, a good one. And it's both, I think it's both obvious and like underestimated, like how formative our childhood experiences are. And, you know, for me, I think probably some context setting probably helps. So I was the youngest of four of an Irish Catholic family, very middle class in a blue collar section of Northeast Philadelphia. Uh, my dad was an electrician who then at night went to college and became an accountant and ultimately spent literally his entire career at Ford Motor Company. My mom stayed at home and raised the, the four of us. And, you know, in terms of what it was like at our dinner table, it was incredibly active and talkative. And I remember it being tough to get a word in edgewise, which I think probably in some way shaped my, my, my perspective as being more of a people watcher and listener, which I'm sure we can talk about. Mm -hmm. But the conversation itself was also uh, formative because it was just hyper-local. And, you know, the worldview was pretty narrow, at least as much as I remember it, around our neighborhood, our church parish, you know, specifically the Northeast section of Philadelphia, our friend's family. And, you know, I just, I don't recall like deep, deep, deep conversations around, you know, the meaning of life or, you know, emotions or, you know, a whole bunch of things that we probably could think about. And you know, when you think about it, like that type of perspective, you know, formative in your childhood years instills your values. And, mm -hmm. you know, my values of seeing my dad being just a hard worker out the door at, you know, 530 every morning around the focus on family and the way my my mom sort of managed all of us, the importance of education and learning, because that was always a focus is, you know, making sure that the grades were good and we you know, tried to achieve in school. But then, you know, other things like, you know, just being practical and doing the right thing and living a simple life. And, and, you know, for me, probably an appreciation for just sort of, you know, the working class and blue collar life, which, you know, is the, the, the raw material, which makes the rest of it go. So it's funny. I like, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about sort of that dynamic in many, 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 many years. And it was fun to try to think about put myself back in my eight year old or 10 year old self and remember sort of my dad, you know, leading conversations about various things. And, you know, my entire family is very active and talkative and just being the youngest uh, uh, caused me to have more of a bystander type of role in some respects. But it, it's also funny that, you know, I've come to know that our memories are pretty, are pretty deceiving at times. Mm -hmm. And so I would love, and maybe this is an idea for you is to actually have like a drop-in of, of your guest family saying, you know, no, Mike, you know, you had a way wrong. That's not exactly at all how I remember it because there's so many ways that our memory, you know, that we created ourselves and, you know, encoded in our, in our brains that we believe it to be true. But I do think it's such a great starting point because, you know, who we are, and I'm north of 50 at this point, who we are is formed at the dinner table when we're eight. Totally mm -hmm. get it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, you've pointed to so many really great things in there. And I think it is important to make a note because I've been sharing, especially in the last couple of years, I've been more openly sharing about my experience and what it was like at my dinner table and what I was like as a child. And I realized that the more that I talk about these things, the more other memories come up. And it kind of depends in a lot of ways. It depends on what mood I'm in or like what I'm looking at in my life currently is kind of the way that I look back on what my dinner table was like. And our memory can be really faulty and we, we believe what we believe. So there's, there's something about kind of holding it a little bit lightly that it might not be fully true, but also honoring this is, this is how I interpreted it. And that's, that's as real as anything, I suppose. So I, I want to name that, but I think one of the threads that was most interesting to me, and I, I'm curious to hear if this was something that, that mattered to you is that you said there's on one hand, there were pretty distinct and distinguished family values. Like it was live a simple life and do the right thing and really be pr pragmatic and work hard. And on the other hand, you said that there was an absence or a void maybe of meaningful conversations. Is that something that you were wanting from, I mean, you could talk about this from your current vantage point. Maybe you weren't aware of that when you were eight or nine years old, but was that something that you wish that you had when you were younger? Is it just an observation that you're making in this moment or? Yeah, I think it's just an observation now because, you know, you don't know what you don't know uh certainly at a at a young age and i am who i am now because of the sum of all these experiences i've had starting with my parents and you know my parents you know they they obviously came from very incredibly more simple means uh you know my dad being uh, probably a first generation college graduate in his family although i believe maybe his sister also did go to college and his brother later but came from very simple means and you know the the values and the things that they want to instill in us is all about making sure that their kids have a better life and, you know, more successful in, you know, how that's defined in society, you know, in the 1970s. And it's about, you know, education and titles and sort of moving up the economic ladder. You know, those are the things that are important to them, making sure all their kids go to college, et cetera. So it's hard for me to look back and sort of long for something else because my parents did everything they thought was right and the best that they could. And, you know, I I am incredibly satisfied with the the life I've had as a result of what they did at a young age to, you know, propel me forward. So yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that though what you're touching on is how do we all learn and grow and use the the wisdom and the life experience to be paying it forward a little bit for our own family and the people around us. And so I do think it's interesting, and I hadn't thought about this until literally this moment of this conversation, if I were to do a compare and contrast video of the types of conversations that happen at my dinner table now with my wife and my two sons with the, the dinner table, you know, in 1977, and they are different. And I mean, there's similarities because, you know, you always are catching up on life and there's things to, to do. But uh, I definitely think, you know, I and my wife and my boys as well just have a different perspective on 
our lives and our place in society and our own privilege and what's going on in the world. And we've got greater access to information and, you know, all, all these things that sort of are just fundamentally different in 2022 than they were uh, 40 years ago. So the, the conversation is very different. It's interesting. Yeah, it sounds like in, in a lot of ways, it's gone from very localized to more global, right? There's like, a how do we, how do we reconcile who we are with our family, but then also like, what, how do we want to manifest that into our life? And one of my curiosities, I, I want to talk about, of course, where your love for sport developed, and I'm guessing it was at a young age, but just something that's alive for me right now is just thinking about values and, and you've already spoken to values that were instilled in you at a young age what are some values that are most alive for you today and how do they compare to the values that were maybe spoon-fed to you when you were younger Hmm, interesting well it's funny one of the exercises when i worked at the nfl that i actually went through was reimagining the nfl's values I, i led a project where in 2014, 2015, we went enterprise-wide with owners and players and clubs and the league office to actually reimagine uh, the values at the time and uh, that were inherent in the game, inherent in our organization, and then instill them in uh, the entire organization in sort of every manner that we can think of. And from that, you hear a lot of storytelling from people, different moments where different values resonated. And then you from that, you also just get to think about different values and how they manifest themselves in life. So to hear you know, a current player talk about things that are going on in the locker room where they see players taking care of each other, players you know, covering for each other or being there for them when they need, need it. And so those stories, just an example, just really sort of become internalized. And the, the values we end up having at the NFL end up end up sort of really rising top for me on my own personal values only because I was so ingrained and so part of the storytelling. And so those values are integrity, responsibility to the team, respect and resiliency were the four values we landed on. And when I think about it, I'm sure you could come up with other four values and they would be all fine. But but for me, like integrity is sort of the table stakes for a lot of relationships and, and conversation. And people can define that in different ways. But, you know, I think fundamental honesty and fairness and, you know, saying what, doing what you say you're going to do, those are the types of things that, you know, are for me integrity. You know, responsibility to the team resonates for me because it it situates you in sort of a broader situation or broader society or broader context because you know nothing i do is going to be successful unless i've got the support and you know the the collaboration with others around me and so i love that as a concept to to take the the spotlight off of an individual and put the spotlight on sort of a broader team respect i just think is you know also foundational from a relationship standpoint and how we treat people and you know we can define sort of, you know, what respect looks like, and some people may interpret it differently, but, you know, there's a golden rule in life, you know, treat others how you want to be treated. And 
I love the platinum rule, which I think is treat others how they want to be treated. And when you change that one word, it puts so much more responsibility on me as an individual to actually get to know them and find out how they want to be treated. And that's hard work at times. But again, that's truly respecting someone when you're actually you know, getting to know them and, and treating them the way they want to be treated. And then finally is resilience, which to me is, it's just, life is hard, right? And you know, grit became a very trendy word with Angela Duckworth's work uh, and her famous TED Talk, et cetera. And it's one of those things that maybe being born and raised in Philly is one of the things that maybe most I most identify with because Philly as a city, you know, it, not everybody's a fan of it from sports context or other contexts, but it's a gritty city. And the city really identifies with their gritty athletes. And, you know, life is not going to be fair. And, you know, Yes, you can complain about it or blame someone or point to someone else, but at some point, you know, you got to have personal agency and you got to do something about it. And how do you figure out how to fight through an obstacle? How do you figure out how to fight through something that, you know, you, you perceive to be less than a level playing field? You know, that's going to define your success in life. And so, you know, for me, thinking about my own values aligned with what we created the NFL, I'm sure if I thought more, there'd be other sort of spins or angles that we would take it, but that encapsulates a lot of what I find important now. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. There's, there's elements of community in there. So it's like the collective, what's, what's best for the collective good. There's elements of personal responsibility and, and how your actions affect those around you. And I would love to, at one point in the conversation, I'm sure we'll circle back to how you implemented those values and, and kind of it's, I think there's a lot of organizations right now who pay lip service to creating patchy sounding values. And, and it's really easy to get a general buy-in around, yeah, integrity and responsibility, respect and resiliency. Yeah. Like those are, those are really important things. And it's a, a whole other thing to actually be able to have an organization and embody those values and really live and breathe them. So I want to put a pin in that, but I, I think I want to circle back to where your love for sport originated, because that is one of the first areas in my life that I came alive. My my mom said the first time that I sat still as a little baby was when I was at an Army Navy game when I was, I think, about one year old. I was, I was just 12 months on this planet. And before I even had any words to speak to or really any cognition at all, there was something about sport that I was really drawn to. And my mom has asked me a million times in my life why she's like very curious to understand and I, I didn't have the language for it for most of my life. But I think I do to a certain extent now, I, I would love to hear what your version of that is. Like what, what are you drawn to about sports? Why is that the avenue that you decided to place a lot of your attention? Sure, there there was a lot of different phases to it. I mean, I think, you know, being in a working class, middle class section of Northeast Philadelphia, you know, you're just indoctrinated with Eagles, Flyers, Phillies, et cetera. And then the local community with all the youth organization, athletics, and in some ways it's societal roles, place people that, you know, if you play sports, you know, you're more popular or that's sort of the the way that you become more included in culture you know even at sort of a 
a young level. But I think sort of as I moved through life, you start to see how sports is is really important just for community building and for connection with people. And there are are few places anymore and maybe none where you can have people of incredibly different beliefs and value systems and political persuasions sitting side by side, locking arms and cheering for the same thing. Mm. And sort of, to me, it's sort of such a powerful thing to bring people together and actually remind people that we've got a lot more in common than we've got different from each other. So again, that sort of is a little bit of a later stage thought. And there was an evolution at some point over life that comes from wanting to be included in sort of whatever the cultural norms were at a young age playing sports, even though I was not particularly athletic in any way, to then ultimately realizing that you still have this real passion and this real avidity that's instilled in a young age for different sports teams to then growing up within the the professional context and realizing just the real higher purpose and power of what sports does for us as a society that then has a downstream effect all the way down to the seven-year-old kid, you know, trying to play baseball. Mm. So one of the things that you teed up for this conversation and you've, you've kind of beautifully set it up for me right now is that you wanted to share some stories that go into why you think sports is a good framework or a great framework actually for leadership. And we've started to put the pieces of the puzzle together a little bit that it's, I think people can tell from the way that you've been speaking that you care about how you show up and you care about leadership. And that's really what you're up to today. And do you have, is there a story that comes to mind for why you think sports is a great framework for leadership? I think that what I probably would say is a couple things. One is that, you know, my background is I was a finance lifer, you know, CFO roles in sports and media. And then at some point, you know, through, you know, just my own learning curve, starting to flatten and always sort of trying to push myself out of my comfort zone, I started to just explore, you know, what other opportunities would exist at the NFL or outside the NFL. And there was two things that really sort of pivoted me. And I'll I'll get to sort of the sports point after that. One is, you know, at some point I had a boss at the NFL come to me and say, you know, Mike, we need to promote a culture of innovation, which, you know, what the heck does that mean? You know, it means whatever we want it to mean, but I want you to create something, an event, a program, something that changes the culture or enhances the culture and become an innovative culture. And what we end up creating at the NFL was this thing called the commissioner awards, which is still going to this day, probably in year 17, 18, can't remember where we had, we honor sort of all the 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 people in the organization that do all the dirty work that actually makes the NFL just a successful organization. And now it's about to the point where there's A-list Hollywood talent that hosted and you have got vignettes that you're producing and it's a big comedy show. But at its core, you know, when I was in finance, oftentimes people are numbers on spreadsheets and you don't really sort of connect with, you know, the the humans that are actually doing all the work. And it was through that project where, you know, I got to meet and really learn about all the little things that are happening that makes the NFL and its successful organization. And just the, the light bulb went on that like, you know, this is really the type of work I should be doing with my life. I was always sort of a right brain thinker in a left brain world. And I always sort of hired really good left brain thinkers to compensate for my right brainness. And so the light bulb went on. And then 
the the sports connection really then happened maybe a little bit over a decade ago. Tony Dungy, the former coach of the the Buccaneers and the, and the Colts, he was writing a book and he came to visit the NFL league office and he was giving a talk to our employees. And I was still in finance at the time, at least my memory as it's been encoded in my brain at this point, remembers but being finance at the time. And he was giving a talk for his book. And one of the, his quotes I wrote down and we all have quotes that we've kept and we still you know lean on. His quote was the secret to success is good leadership and leadership is all about making the lives of your team better. And sort of, it just sort of so captured me because People have different versions of leaders sort of being the ones, you know, running out of the gate first or everyone needing to really satisfy them and their demands and their vision. But it sort of flips the script for me around this notion of servant leadership and looking at what people's strengths are. And you're going to get the best out of your team, your organization, if you're actually looking downward and inward as opposed to looking upward and outward. And so that started a conversation with me where I I pivoted from finance to HR at the league. And one of my first acts was to just start talking to our our leaders around sort of, you know, what they view as leadership, what they view as culture. And I'll never forget this conversation. Uh, Troy Vincent, who uh, runs the football side of the house of the NFL, still there, former Eagle, just by coincidence. He said, you know, Mike, there there is no better example of leadership and culture than the locker room. And so anything you want to find around the way culture should be run, meritocracies, everyone having a chance, high performance, just look in the locker room. And what I did was then really then focus on this concept of coaching because coaching was so endemic to the sport of football and you know through employee surveys and other just conversations at the time the corporate employees didn't feel like they were really being coached it was more of sort of a a scorecard type of thing as opposed to really coaching so you know don't tell me that i got a c tell me how should i get an a in my in my job and so from there, we ended up building a lot of leadership programs and other types of things ingrained in our talent process around this concept of coaching and using football analogies. Because, you know, at some point, many, many years ago, coaching was viewed as sort of something that happened for your worst performing employees. The boss can't handle them. You got to give them a coach. Obviously, now that's not the way the world views coaching, but it wasn't that long ago that that's was the view. And what we started to really, really evangelize is that, you know, Tom Brady, Tiger Woods, Serena Williams, you know, the world's best athletes all have coaches. Why would we not? Mm -hmm. Like that's sort of the way we're going to get better. And then when you sort of carry it one more extension, when we started rolling out leadership programs and things like that, you know, leaders were too busy or, you know, I can't go that week. Can you do it after the season? You know, all that stuff. And what we started to evangelize, again, trying to marry up sports and leadership as culture is that, you know, if you're Tom Brady, Tiger Woods and Serena Williams, you don't train in like the off season. Like you don't view training as a type of thing that you squeeze in when your job isn't busy. You know, training is the job. Training and performance are completely intertwined with each other. The more you train, the better you train, the better you're going to perform. And athletes see that linkage very clearly. And we as fans or as observers of sports see that linkage very clearly. But for some reason in corporate America, that linkage doesn't exist or people don't want it to exist or they don't think it does exist or should exist. And what I tried to do and still try to do is just turn that on its head and really sort of think through how are you training every day to get the best performance that you can possibly get. And that's sort of the genesis of 
sports leadership as an intersection point for me. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot in there. I'm curious. This isn't really, I think, a focal point at all. You're probably going to be surprised that this is one of the threads I want to pick up. But I also have a finance background and it, it resonated with me around this kind of being a, a right-brained person in a left-brained world. And in a lot of ways, I've leaned on my left brain capacities to experience what I thought was success in my life. And I'm wondering how that showed up for you in the finance world. Like, what was it like to be someone who identified there maybe more of a right brain, creative, people-centered thinker in a finance role, which is highly pragmatic, data-driven, analytical? Yeah, I think the way I think about it is that you can be a right brain thinker and a right brain preference, but that doesn't mean you can't develop left brain skills. And there, I think if people that have worked with me, if they if they heard me say that I actually didn't really enjoy or found it very taxing to do a lot of the left brain tasks, they probably would look at me with a little bit of curious eye as that's not the way I showed up. But I think it's all about you can develop a skill, but how much energy are you exerting in order to deploy that skill versus working on things and areas and functions that you've got a natural preference for and natural passion for. And, you know, there's parts and like none of these things are ever sort of totally like absolute mm-hmm. black or white. So there's clearly some things that I, I I love. I still love a good spreadsheet. And I like my, my friends and, you know, I do a, a podcast with an old NFL colleague and literally last week he actually made sort of a spreadsheet joke in the middle of our podcast because, you know, that sort of is still something that I enjoy, but there were so many other functions that are traditional finance functions that I hired around me with people that I knew were really good at that. And to, and for me, that type of manifest, that type of realization around how you need to hire people different from you was probably the first flicker of a light bulb going on of the power of diversity generally, like the diversity for a lot of, for all the right reasons, ends up focusing on the visible differences that people have with each other around race and gender or other things. But diversity at its core is the visible and the invisible. So, you know, what are the what are the things that people, their backgrounds or their skills, their knowledge, their passions, how you coalesce all that together and harness something that's greater into greater in the whole than individually. And from a team building standpoint, I think my subconscious recognition of where I really wanted to be spending my time on strategy or team building or coaching or exercising political acumen to get initiatives passed, that's where I wanted to be and where I was best served. And I needed to augment my team with the people that were really good at closing the books, really good at dealing with auditors, really good at doing an Excel model. Yeah. In a lot of ways, that's what you're pointing to with leadership is is recognizing I don't have to do it all. It, it helps to have, I think that's maybe an antiquated old model of leadership is that it's the the front and center, like marching forward, get, getting all the things done themselves, lone wolf thing. And yeah, with the model of leadership that you're talking about is we need collectively, there's like, it helps to have different types of personalities, people who see the world differently, people who are different genders, different race, that that paints a fuller picture. And it's, yeah, it's refreshing to hear it. It's spoken about that way, because I think that it's like you've pointed to, there aren't that many 
areas in our life where people can all congregate together from different backgrounds and have a shared love for the same thing. It, it is one of the gifts of, of sport. So one I think of just the, to, to, yeah. just to interrupt you for a second, Mike, is part of this starts with a healthy self-awareness of sort of mm -hmm. what you're good at and a real introspection of it. And it could be that the people that you're building your team around you actually have incredibly similar backgrounds, but there's things about them that are serving a need that your team needs that you're not good at or don't want to be good at. So an example, you know, one of the, I won't name him, but if anyone's listening to this podcast, they'll know who I'm talking about. There was a person in the NFL, I added to my, my finance team that he had an incredibly similar background to me. But our personalities and our ability to have difficult conversations and embrace conflict and not be afraid to, you know, really advance a hard conversation or twist some arms on numbers or budgets that did not shy away from those. And that was sort of a skill and a characteristic I needed on my team. And so sometimes you have to go deep in your self-introspection and then do a search around, okay, how do I really sort of do something and find someone that is going to make the team better and it made the team better. So what, what have been some ways that you've refined your ability to, I guess there's part of it is just going inwards and cultivating self-awareness. And so what are, what are some ways that you've refined your self-awareness so that you are more effective at doing the things that you're naming, having tough conversations and identifying strengths that maybe you don't have with other people and, and vice versa? Well, I think two things I point to for myself and, and also probably the same two things I generally point coaching clients to is when you recognize what your strengths are, we all know that when our strengths get overextended, they become blind spots and then end up getting in our way. Mm -hmm. So a healthy understanding of what our strengths then leads us to, okay, let me really think about what happens when I use that too much or lean on it too much or lean on it in the wrong situations. And what are the consequences of that? So an example is a couple of things. One is I think I'm a pretty empathetic guy. And so if I end up, you know, taking an AQ assessment, I'll be higher on the continuum on empathy, just because I really am increasingly focused on, you know, the other person, you know, getting to know them, treating them how they wanted to be treated as we talked about. But as we know, Empathy is a very popular word and a positive word, but you can also be too empathetic, right? Like that is a thing where it forces you to avoid holding people accountable when they need to be held accountable, avoids having a difficult conversation because you don't want to hurt somebody's feeling. It sometimes causes you to take on too much personally because you're trying to save the other person. Uh, and so it's just a healthy recognition of when is my empathy in like the zone of greatness as opposed to... Mm -hmm getting over the line. And there's other characteristics like that, that I'm sure I could point to. So that's sort of, I think the introspective part. And then obviously I'm a big believer in asking for feedback. You know, feedback yeah. is a gift. I mean, it's somewhat is a cliche and my, my sons at this point, like they roll their eyes when sort of like, I even bring up the concept of feedback, but you know, how do you know, like the way you're showing up unless you ask people and, you know, Coaches, you know, we have formal 360 feedbacks where, you know, you'll get the boss and the peers and the direct reports and you'll do the process and you'll create themes. And that's all incredibly helpful, I think, for clients. And people should just be doing this normally anyway. Like what is stopping anybody from 
setting up a consistent routine of coffees and lunches and just talking to folks and saying, hey, listen, how am I doing? You know, what help do you need? You know, we just finished this project. What would have been an even better if, if we did that? You know, how's my team doing? And, you know, you might not agree with everything that's coming your way, but guess what? There's kernels of truth there, that there's a reason that the person is coming with that feedback. And for us to actually have the ability to open up, be vulnerable and have a conversation like that and be receptive to, even if it's 5% of, okay, there's probably something there, that's hard. You know, it, I literally just had a coaching client this week who were working on his political acumen. And I think there is a great interrelationship with developing political acumen around an organization and also creating self-awareness by asking for feedback and deepening relationships. I think it's sort of a, a Venn diagram that's a pretty tight Venn diagram. And this person created a, a list of people that they were going to go have some conversations with around feedback. And some of the people on the list, the person was generally apprehensive, like the relationship isn't good. I'm worried that people are going to use it against me. It probably wasn't the safest culture in that respect. And the conversation came back and the, the person was spent a lot of the time fighting what the feedback was. The person didn't understand and, you know, that that context wasn't right and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so as coaches do just try to reframe the conversation, you know, what was right around sort of what was there? Like there, it couldn't have been a hundred percent wrong. I've never been in a conflict or a conversation with a person where I was a hundred percent right. Like that, that just doesn't exist. There's gotta be something there. What was right? And so once we anchored on the kernel of truth, the person actually agreed with, then the more you sort of pulled in that thread and actually talked about it, it became a big aha sort of moment around not the person specifically, but about the person's team and the way the person's team was actually impacting the dynamic that existed across the, the organization silo. And so none of that happens without a, first a desire to be aware and then the actual action of actually opening up and listening. And you know, to tie it back to sports, I've got a sports analogy for probably every single thing you can think about. It's all about seeing the field clearly. Like if you're a quarterback and you, it's all foggy and it's sort of rainy and you can't see your receivers, like you're not going to play well. So the way that you see the field clearly is by having maximum data and maximum clear skies and seeing where all the players are around you. And that's what, for me, asking feedback is to create awareness. So it's the introspective and then the outside as well. Mm. Do you have go-to questions that are, whether it's for yourself to be more open to feedback or that you use with clients, because I know I think I'll reveal myself here when in a lot of cases, I'm very closed off on receiving feedback because I perceive it as criticism. And I've had to really am deeply embed in myself that like one belief that I'm adopting right now is that every piece of feedback or everything that someone else says, an opinion that they have is at least 10% true. And it's been really helpful for me to embed that into my system to know, even if I react in a kind of closed off defensive way at first, if I really sit with it an hour or two later, I it's like, what was what was at least 10% correct about that would maybe be one question that I would ask myself to be more receptive to the feedback. 
And yeah, in a lot of ways, I can double down and plant my feet in the ground and be really deeply committed to being right. And I'd be curious to hear just ways that you kind of safeguard yourself against that tendency, if you will. Yeah, I think for me, if you find you're a person on the other end that's sort of closed off to sort of what saying, then I think a reframing or a perspective shifting is probably my next move. So again, sports analogy, when a coach or players are reviewing plays or the game, they're not looking at it from an individual player perspective. What's the quarterback seeing or the linebacker seeing? They're viewing it from a thing called an all 22 video. So they're viewing it from up above. And there's a reason that coaches and players view football tape from up above is because you get to see everybody movement, the entire play take shape, who's doing what in response to what. And so you're seeing the entire ecosystem. And so if a person is really closed off to what they're hearing, I try to get them to go to an all 22 video where let's look at this from the cloud and what's going on in that person's world. What's what, what happened to them when they, before they showed up to the meeting, what challenges are they having? And this literally happened also recently where I had a person take that perspective and it was Friday to take that perspective. And it was really hard because I said, let's go all 22 gave a little bit more opening preamble. And the person described a lot about what's going on in the world, a lot about what's going on in their team, but really stopped short of going to the other side. I'm like, that was great. A lot of great insights. That was an all 11 video. That was not an all 22 video. And we know there's offensive defense 11 on both sides for those that aren't as familiar with sports. I want the all 22. Where are we with the other side? And the person then said, well, I'm not really familiar. I'm not working there. I'm like, I don't really know. Okay. You don't know fully. What do you know? Let's start with like, what do you know that we can start building on? And of course, once you start talking, there was a lot more the person knew about meetings that were going on and other personal context and employee turnover and other things that were impacting this person almost assuredly before they went into this conversation, which didn't go as well as, as we would have hoped. So and then classic coach move. Okay. Well, what, how does that inform where you go next? You know, you, you said a lot of things. We don't know if it's fully accurate. You don't work there, but sounded pretty informed, pretty insightful. What do you think? And the move that the person teed up making before that exercise was not 180 degrees different, but you know, 160 degrees different from mm. where they ended up. And again, we'll see what happens next week when they revisit this situation. But to your point, I do think that sometimes it's not enough just to take the other person's perspective, because mm. that in some ways is could be too limiting, as although that's a good starting point. Sometimes I think the perspective has got to be the all 22 video, seeing the entire system and what yeah. the relationships are. Yeah. So that's exactly where I wanted to go, actually, because I, I do think in systems, and I think that there are a lot of frameworks that are really helpful for, I guess, implied in an all 22 video is that you're, you're understanding that there are in some ways, there's 22 different systems that are affecting each other. And if you look at an organization, it's even bigger in scope. And the, an organization, a lot of times, if it's run really well, there's the people that work within the organization, but there's also the, the customers or the consumers or, or the people that are affected by what the organization is doing. And 
at the NFL, I mean, there's you're you're working with millions and millions and millions of people are affected by what is what is being created internally, culture wise. So I guess what, what I'm getting at here, the, the question that I'm having is just around are there have there been frameworks that have been helpful for you in understanding the way that systems work and the way that you know, different actions or inputs affect different outputs? I'm not sure I've got a great framework to share. I think what one of the things I'd lean on is there's a great management leader that started the, the quality movement I think in the 60s, this guy, Edward Deming. And he had a, a great quote that every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, the insight there is that what's happening now in a given context at any of our clients is the perfect result of everything else that's going on. And so if you want to change the results, we need to change the the gears or the inputs that are causing that to happen. And I think that ends up leading us to a little bit of root cause analysis. You know, there's different tools out there around, you know, fishbone diagrams or stakeholder maps, but one of my go-to moves would just be the the very common, you know, five why question. Like if there's an issue, let's just drill down ask why five times, and then you're going to get to the root cause by the fifth why, almost surely, let's start there. What can we do about that root cause? And then use that as a launching off pad. Because one of the things that we know is that sometimes it's just hard to get started and people get lost in the complexity and the ambiguity and the pace of the workplace. And there's people, there's emotions. And going back to the start of our conversation, I do think that it was a value, but now I think it's also a skill is I've over time gotten really good at simplifying things. Like let's figure out what is it that we can control and let's put just one foot in front of the other. Like we're not going to solve this overnight, but what is one micro step we can take now that starts moving us in the right direction? And sometimes the client won't know that answer because they're, they're still trying to think too big of what that next step could be. And trying to rein them in is let's just start making some progress because progress is an incredibly powerful motivator. Just putting one foot in front of the other creates self-perpetuating momentum, as we know. So what's the smallest thing you can do right now to start moving in the right direction on this root cause we've identified as is a function that's creating this bigger environment? So that's that's probably how I would think about something for that and like just sort of tying it into you know a coaching story you know i had a client who was a rock star of an executive values work ethic empathetic people focused and the results were good not great and what he wanted to do was actually make the results great and so in talking to the the board and the employees and sort of understanding a little bit more about the environment, this person was such a servant leader and such a rock star from an intellect perspective, they were actually disempowering everyone around them because he was jumping in too much too quickly in order to make things happen. And the organization was not moving as quickly uh, as they needed to because everything was getting funneled to him and he would work tirelessly to satisfy every request. And so that created a system around how this organization 
made decisions, executed, communicated. And again, the results were good, not great. So getting to sort of that root cause, okay, what gear now do we need to do to pull, to start moving things in a different direction? It takes some work. And so for, for this person, it was about sort of leading with questions, not opinions. It was about sort of raising their threshold of the things that they end up getting involved in because some things maybe aren't executed perfectly, but the stakes are sort of low. So you just sort of let it go and you move on to the things where the stakes are bigger and you need to make sure that they're right. And, you know, over time, you know, we saw the results get better and better. And sometimes it's tough to see, it's tough to see the field unless you sort of really sort of dive down into some of the root causes and then try some things because again, it's not going to change overnight and not every move you make is going to be perfect. And oftentimes, you know, we're asking leaders to try new behaviors that they're muscles that aren't developed. So the first yeah. time they do it, it's going to be an experiment and they might fail. And if they fail, it's not because it was a bad strategy. It was just because the execution wasn't quite right. And we got to practice a little bit more. And so that's just an example of sort of how seeing a system might manifest itself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the five levels. Why just asking why and getting to the root cause. I think that's, a, I, I want to maybe unpack an example if there's anything that comes to mind. And I also love the question of what's the smallest action we can take or what's the tiniest step that we can take in the right direction here to reorient to some sort of way that we can make progress right now because it is easy to, that's another tendency that I have and I, I see it's very common that it if you get lost in the big picture and the field is really blurry and and it's hard to see what the right thing is, there's usually, if we're patient enough and sit with it long enough, it becomes pretty evident that there is a tiny step that you can take in the right direction. And sometimes for me, uh, honestly, a lot of times for me, the tiniest step that I can take is to step away from it for five minutes sure. and then revisit it, right? Like it, it can be really that simple is like my brain is not, um, I'm kind of, I've got the in the zone kind of locked into one perspective and I, I'm not able to see multiple perspectives. So a lot of times it is that simple. I just need to step away. But I I don't know if there's anything that comes to mind for you. Is there an example of a time that someone maybe had a, a certain presenting challenge that it felt clear to you, you needed to go a little bit deeper and what, what it looked like to ask the why five times? Just, I think it could be really helpful to understand. Uh, you know, I'm not sure this is a perfect answer, but I'm, I think that thinking of another client where the client was concerned about the performance of one of their partners, their peers. And when the initial sort of assessment of what's going on with the other person that's causing sort of this performance gap, it was a lot of skill or, you know, work ethic or sort of just lack of focus and, and other things. And what, what we ended up drilling down on is that oftentimes there's a loss of trust and trust is so foundational, but it's also a little bit of an amorphous word for folks. And so I've got a tool I use where we really break down what are the different areas of trust, whether it's sort of a character issue like integrity or transparency, things like that. Or is it a competence issue where it's about, do they just not have the skills and they're not delivering or they're just not delivering results and why are they not delivering results? And this, although there maybe was an initial suspicion that there was sort of some type of motivation or a transparency or some other type of issue going on, it really came down to a results 
view. Once we sort of really started pulling at the, the whys, whys is going on, whys is going on, it was more of a results perspective. And that just allowed a more focused conversation of, okay, well, why are the results not there? And then it became a little bit of prioritization, number of projects, resourcing, some of the more junior people getting pulled in a number of different directions. And it sort of was just eye-opening. And you know that that organization, I think, is in a much better place just sort of now having at least some framework to to utilize to think about sort of their problems. And a lot of this stuff is helpful, I think, only because it just increases speed. Like, you know, if you mm-hmm. just take that example, if you say, I don't trust this other person or this person doesn't trust me, but that conversation can go in circles forever trying to figure out why we don't trust each other. And so coming up with ways that we can have a common language around, okay, well, what does that mean? Let's get right to the point because we, we've got too many challenges that we got to figure this out as quick as possible. Let's get right to the root cause of what we think a trust issue is and, and fix that ASAP. So just an example, maybe to your point. Yeah, yeah. That was very helpful. Thank you. There's a, a past guest of mine. Her name is Laura Heacock. She said that she starts a lot of times she starts by saying, help me understand whatever whatever the thing is, whatever the challenge is. And I guess that's a, another way of what, what I'm hearing in your in your response is that a lot of times, whether it's our biases or maybe our come from in general, we don't really understand exactly what's going on with the other person. And it's it's kind of your platinum rule, right? It's like really understanding what's going on, not what you would want, but what, what do they want? What does this person across from you want? And help me understand, I think, could be a really helpful way of deepening, not jumping to an initial conclusion, but slowing down enough that you're you're really making sure that you're talking about the same thing, which is, I, I mean, it's it's easy to say right now, but it's really, we gloss over that a lot of times in, in everyday conversations where we we think we know what the answer is, we, we speak the answer out, and where you kind of end up missing each other for sometimes really long periods of time that can end up being the, the way of the culture, really. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a big challenge. There's a I don't have you I don't know if you ever heard of a tool called the ladder of inference. Is that something you're from, familiar with? Yeah. So it's something I came across in my doctoral program at Vanderbilt, and literally, it's now one of my favorite coaching tools. And it speaks to your your point, which is that our our what we see and what information we take in is limited based on our own biases and our own past experiences. So we only see in some ways what we are expecting to see or want to see and are not seeing everything we need to see. And then that just becomes a reinforcing function where if I'm if I'm expecting Mike to do something wrong to me, then everything I see is going to be Mike doing something wrong to me. And then that's going to reinforce my own belief and value system, which then further limits what I see with every interaction with Mike. And so one of the tools I use with the the ladder is it's a three-step process is first checking your own mindset around sort of that. Am I approaching this conversation with some bias around sort of what other experiences have been and really having an honest conversation with yourself on it? Second is how you advocate your own position. So oftentimes there, there needs to be a slowdown in a conversation. And I've I've sort of mediated disputes between two people where you're talking past each other. You see it, that they're just not on the same page. They're not listening. They're not trying to engage conversation as if it's a real exchange of ideas. They're just trying to win and make sure the other person hears their point. And so there's a way that you advocate your position that, you know, you're not saying, Mike, you did this to me. Your team is bad, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, listen, this happened and this is how it impacted me. 
this happened and I interpreted it this way. So it's, you know, the classic coach trick of using eyes, not use in a conversation. And then the last step is inquiry, which is your point to help me understand yeah. point. Like I've checked my own mindset. I think I'm as objective as can. I've explained to you in very a non-emotional sort of personal way, how this impacted me or my team, but I know I'm missing something because I know that I have to be missing something. Help me understand what did I miss from your perspective? What am I not seeing? You know, share with me how my perspective is incorrect. And it's too often people enter a conversation, not with that willingness or vulnerability to actually maybe be wrong or maybe learn something, which is, you know, a fatal flaw, I think. But when you enter a conversation, checking your mindset, advocating yourself in a way that's not charging, not, not going to inflame the situation, and then legitimately inquiring around what am I missing, you're going to lead to a better result. The trick, oftentimes though, it's slow. It's like hand-to-hand combat, yeah. like because you're going to have disagreements and you got to stop and say, okay, we don't agree on this. Let's sort of stop right on this point and let's sort of wrestle down this point and I've had sessions where clients, it would literally take a long time because they would have a disagreement on something and not and not sort of find a common ground. You'd sort of go back to some old behaviors of sort of not listening. And so you have to get them back into sort of a three-step process. And then at some point you have to say, okay, well, what do we agree on? Like to your point that there's 10% that we have to agree on, let's find that 10%. Okay, we're grounded in this 10%. Now let's build up from there. And so some of these things are are really, really challenging for folks because they're so busy and there's mistrust and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if you want to really fundamentally improve dynamics in some of these conversations, you got to have the tough conversations. And sometimes it's it's slow and can be painful. Mm. I'm, I'm wondering if there's been tough conversations or, or tough feedback that comes to mind for you, whether it was feedback given to you or feedback that you've given that maybe in the beginning it it had that kind of that sting to it that feel to it of like I, i'm not ready to receive this and we had to like really it's got that hand-to-hand combat feel no that, uh, you're seeing it wrong no, no and like there's maybe a back and forth and then eventually it landed with you in some way that something shifted does does anything come to mind there around really tough feedback or uh, you know, the the podcast would probably have to be spending another couple hours for me to go through all the <laughs> tough feedback that was valid over my career. One just like rise to the top right now, only because I was just clearing out my clearing out some paperwork and I stumbled upon a 360, I'm sorry, a, a, a talent review calibration section that happened in the NFL offices, you know, forever ago, where they talked about a bunch of people that were up for promotion and all the executives weighed in and some executives were responsible for soliciting feedback across the organization so that the executives would be fully informed on the person before they possibly were promoted. And what was great about it is they actually gave you all the feedback and they gave you notes of the discussion at the end of it. So you know exactly, not who said what, but you know exactly what was said, what came from feedback outside of the room, what came from feedback inside the room. And one of the pieces of the feedback that really stung me at the time was that I was perceived as gossipy that I sort of was someone that, and I had access to a ton of information back in the, in the finance days and would sort of be a little bit too gossipy in terms of what the, the office politics were. And I sort of really sort of just fundamentally disagreed with that. And at the end of the day, like it wasn't sort of like the biggest thing in the world, but, you know, sometimes, you know, when you get something 
you focus, we as human beings, we focus on the negative much more than we focus on the positives. And it took a little bit of perspective for me to realize, again, this, this balance and the yin and the yang of our strengths and when they get overextended. Because I, I really viewed myself as a very skilled office politician of using my relationships and other conversations in order to advance agendas or impact decisions or impact resourcing and, and move things along. And with a little bit of perspective, it's easy to see how someone, if they're operating with that way in order to use politics in order to advance their agenda, that involves information, involves relationship building, that clearly could be overextended in actuality, if not perception, as being over the line, as being something that, you know, isn't really something I would be proud of. And so it was just, you know, a little bit of a bucket of water in the face of be mindful and you know, recognize that my reality isn't everybody else's perception and perception is reality. And that that was very, very helpful feedback for me around how to approach exercising political acumen in a way that is viewed the way that I intended it to be viewed. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I so one I've had a lingering curiosity that's been in the back of my mind for a, a lot of the conversation. And I think there's a lot of like the Patriots come to mind as an example of a team that has a, a strong culture. And I think that the, it's pretty generally accepted what a strong like what team has a strong culture in the NFL and, and what teams maybe are kind of a hot mess, including my beloved New York Jets. But I I don't think it's really spoken about that much, like what actually is making it an effective culture. And, and you have a unique lens that you have been inside the NFL for, not, you're not there anymore, but you you were there for a long time. And yeah, I'd be curious to hear whether it's the Patriots or otherwise, what, what do you think created the most successful cultures in the NFL? Really good quarterbacks. <laughs> <laughs> so I think when you when you've got Tom Brady, that's going to be a great head start for a great culture. But serious, I, I in some ways it starts with you know how do we define culture? And culture is mm -hmm. also one of those words that's a little bit you know all over the place for folks. I think one of the definitions I heard that is somewhat common is you know culture is the way things work around here. And so like it's your the sum of your habits and your norms and your beliefs and your behaviors and sort of just that sums to a lot of things. And we know when we walk into a culture that's incredibly collaborative and flexible and sort of decision making process, what that looks like versus walking to a place that's very siloed or regulated from a decision making standpoint. So difference between a startup and like a governmental authority, you know, we know those cultures are fundamentally different. And so for a sports organization, it starts with who is at the top that's putting out the vision of what they want. Do they want something much more like a startup or much more like, you know, the SEC or some governmental entity? And oftentimes that's the owner. So a place like the Patriots, Robert Kraft is the person that's espousing that vision. Sometimes though, it's the coach because Robert Kraft also is an incredibly strong coach in Bill Belichick. Sometimes it's the general manager, where is the Patriots, they sort of, Belichick is sort of the coach and the general manager. But different clubs, and we can go around all 32, the person setting the vision is either the GM, the coach, or the owner. And sometimes it's the owner sort of with delegated authority down to 
the other two. And so it starts with that. And then it becomes then, okay, well, what are the ways that things are going to work around here? And that comes to, you know, how are people delegated authority? How are decisions are going to be made? How are things communicated? What's communicated? And I think that there isn't a right or wrong culture at the NFL, no different than there's no right or wrong culture in any other organization. It's just the culture needs to match what the business purpose is and the environment that they're trying to execute in. But the important thing is how do you have alignment from A to Z through the organization where every everybody understands how things are going to work around here. Everyone understands what the expectations are. People can look and see when someone's living the culture the right way. And people can look and see when someone's living the culture not the right way. And so I think a key foundational piece is just to define that stuff. So, you know, we talked about, you know, values and, you know, integrity and respect. Well, what does that look like on an everyday basis? And so I think the best cultures actually arm their employees with what that looks like on an everyday basis, and then infuses that in the way they work. So it infused in how they interview employees, it infuses how they evaluate employees, it infuses how they pay employees, it infuses the way meetings are going to run, it infuses what internal communications looks like, yeah. all that sort of stuff. And so when you have a place like the Patriots, where I know that place pretty well, and it operates a little differently than most clubs. And that's sort of a secret for success that works for them. But that doesn't mean it's the only secret of success because we've seen a lot of clubs, Kansas City most recently, with what they've got going on. And, you know, we can credit the quarterback and uh, sort of a joke, but it's got some some degree of truth to it. But there is an underlying culture that produces the quarterback and produces the quarterback success. And there is no one size fits all. So I did, I wanted to circle back to values and, and how you helped implement them. And, and you've, again, you've beautifully teed it up and you're making my life and my job very easy right now. So I would love to hear, I guess I have two curiosities about your time at the NFL in, in this moment right now. One is I imagine it was, it could be challenging. Like the NFL, at least from my vantage point, has a reputation for being very bureaucratic and maybe a, a little bit slower to change. And so I'm, I'm wondering how you were able to hold up a mirror to the NFL's collective blind spots in a way that the NFL was, was receptive to it. And I guess the second part of my question is based on the values that we've talked about, integrity, resilience, respect, responsibility, how did those become not just words that the NFL wanted to implement, but actual ways of being that people were living and breathing in, in the culture? Yeah. Well, I think it's probably helpful. You, you called out sort of the, you know, your, your view as sort of a bureaucracy, you know, the sports leagues generally are really different animals than most other organizations, because there's not many organizations where your mission in life is to regulate and oversee your bosses and your bosses are both partners and competitors depending upon the issue and that creates a dynamic in terms of how the the organization is governed and it's a dynamic that you really need to sit in and understand in order to be successful in that's why you know most organizations in the NFL are no different they'd like to have a healthy dose of internal talent and external talent to have this blend of new ideas and institutional ideas. But I think the NFL probably tilts for a lot of right reasons towards maybe less of a balance between internal and external and more of a mindset of internal promotion because you seeing the way the, the machine works is just important in order to get things done with this incredibly 
interesting governance model and we haven't even include players and sort of the governmental authorities and other constituents that sort of make up sort of all the, the people that are a constituents that we have to worry about. And so with that, I think it is a hyper-political organization. And I, I, I don't view politics as a negative word anymore. Politics is neutral. It's just the way that organizations advance agendas, allocate resources, make decisions, influence people when you've got different constituents with different agendas. So, but the NFL was a hyper-political organization for all the reasons I'm describing. And so in order to, I'm not going to, you know, put myself on a pedestal saying, you know, Mike Smith was holding a mirror up to the NFL and sort of changed the world. I, I don't, know if I I could ever say I I fulfilled that role, but it is recognizing moments in time when there's specific initiatives that you think are really important that now is the time to strike and exert some political capital to move the, the needle on something. And so there were a number of times when I felt that there was an initiative, whether it's implementing the values or implementing some other types of talent programs where, you know, I would make an assessment of this is something where Mike is going to put himself out there and say, this is something that needs to happen. And there was other times when I would, you know, live to fight another day and not push it forward. And, you you know, you mentioned sort of tough feedback I've received. You know, I definitely received feedback that, you know, I'm not consistently putting my, my stake in the ground saying like, this is something that we need to do. And, you know, somebody may say that may view that as me having not had a strong point of view and trying to sort of, you know, read read the wins. And from my perspective, it was about, you know, really, you know, fighting the fights that I felt were really worth fighting. And so that's sort of, I think, in some respect, how how you shine a mirror up is, you know, going all in with your poker chips on the moments when you think you've got a good hand and the pot is big enough that you actually want to want to win the pot. And that doesn't mean I always won in those moments. It's just that my batting average would have been a lot higher because I was really picking my battles that I felt were the right risk reward, you know, and specifically on the, the values side, it was interesting. The moment of time of when this went down was right after I joined the HR team in the, right around the summer of 2014. So, you know, when I joined the HR team in the summer of 2014, you know, you walk into a new role with a lot of fanfare and, you know, Roger Goodell, the commissioner to his credit, he was the one that actually pushed me to go all in on either being in HR or finance. There was some some early thinking I had of like trying to be a hybrid role, do both. And Roger, to his credit, said, no, Mike, you know, if you want to do this, you're going all in. I'm not going to have you being half measure either way. I'm going to support you either way you go, but, you know, you're either all in or not. So I went all in, big announcement, organization, employees, owners, et cetera. And right at the end of that summer, all my grand plans of doing all this great stuff, we had the the Ray Rice and domestic violence issues pop up literally, you know, a month or two after I joined HR. So that quickly pivoted to a very type of, very t- different type of environment. And it's sort of almost painful to rewind the clock and sort of relive what that moment was like. But what was born out of that was there was new personal conduct policies and a whole bunch of stuff. But one of the things that we started to evangelize is that, you know, policies only get you so far in life. You know, at some point you have to change sort of the internal DNA of who you are as an organization, and then start really having people align with that in order to manifest what you want to be. And this wasn't just sort of a league office thing. It needed to be an entire NFL ecosystem thing. And so there was a lot of communication and a lot of, you know, ecosystem management and, you know, a lot of, a lot of pushback in so many different places. 
But at the end of the day, for the values to be successful, it can't just be the things that are on paperweights or registered in the lobby room door. You have to live them and embed them in everything you do. So we changed how we interviewed people by creating interview guides so you can tease out you know, specific examples that you thought created risk or you knew the person aligned. We changed sort of how we developed leaders and created real specific behaviors that were different by level based on different values manifesting themselves. Obviously, it, it flowed into promotion conversations because at the end of the day, people will think your values are the individuals you're promoting and hiring. Like those are the two levers that are very public. And you know, if you're promoting and hiring people that aren't in line with the values, the people will very quickly realize that that's just a bunch of BS. And I'm not going to say we were at all perfect you know, at all. Like you know, no organization ever is. It's always aspirational. And it's been three years since I, I worked with the NFL, and I'm sure things are a lot better and also different from when I was there. But that's the way you sort of take them off the lobby room doors and you really embed them. Is that you have to embed them in your talent processes, but then you also have to make it really visible and concrete and easy for employees to understand what's expected of them. So whether I'm a coordinator or whether I'm a senior vice president. I know what respect means. Like I know what re- yeah. responsibility a team means at specific level. And then, uh, and then you go from there. Mm. So there's one, one thing that I really loved about your response in there was that you named that no quality is inherently good or bad, right? So politics is, is the one that we spoke about that the microscope is on right now. But I, I wrote down that things like bureaucracy, they, I guess my come from in that question already implied bureaucracy is inherently a really bad thing. And I want to maybe call myself out on that is that if I, if I look from the what's 10% great about bureaucracy, there's real benefits of having structure and processes and kind of formalized ways of doing things. And I think in, in terms of organizations, it's helpful to look at polarities a lot of times and maybe two ends of extremes, one being total bureaucracy where there's innovation is completely stifled and there's no autonomy. And and maybe what what comes to mind or what's evoked for me would be speaking to a customer service representative who, if you ask them to do anything off the books, it's, you know, they, they don't have any sort of autonomy or creative liberty to do something. Whereas if you look on the other end of the polarity, and that there's no structure at all. It's just complete chaos is basically what, what would happen. And so to look at polls and say like, what's the, what's the right harmony here between bureaucracy on like the extreme rigid end versus total chaos and total freedom where people show up and have no idea what their roles are. There are organizations like that. And in a leadership context, it's helpful to pick in in different contexts what is most useful and i i think about that on an individual level as well which you started to point to that if we look if we lean on one tool too hard it's not it can be the hammer that's looking for nails everywhere and if empathy is your only tool that you're that you're leaning on as a leader it is it's helpful in a lot of contexts and it's also limited and I think one of the most helpful frameworks that I've come across recently is in my interview that I did with Amy Elizabeth Fox, which before we jumped on here, you said you started to listen to, she talks about the archetypes of the the dreamer, the lover, the thinker, and the warrior. And it's easy to 
fall into the trap of thinking that you only fall into one of those four categories. And we probably all do have one predominant category, but we're all dynamic and we, we have access to, I think you can all think of different times in our life where we've channeled the warrior or we've channeled the thinker or channeled the lover. And I think one of the most important skills that I'm focused on developing in myself as a leader is being having access to all four of those different quadrants given different contexts. Like sometimes I think warrior for me is the toughest one to access. Like you, I'm more of an empathetic leader. So I'm, I'm very caring and thoughtful. So thinker and lover are pretty easy for me to access. Dreamer has been coming online, but more recently, but I think warrior is one that I'm working on. Sometimes it it's time to like plant your stake in the ground, like you were saying, and, and really like take committed action. Like this is something I really care about. And like, I want to be loud and take up space around this thing. So I, I wanted to name all of those as important elements to look at both an, internally on an individual and maybe even introspective level. And then also, if you look at the collective and, and organization, all of these different things, like looking at polarities and having access to maybe more dynamic qualities can help us. It creates cultures where you're, you're more able to kind of ride through the natural shifts and waves of, of life. Yeah, a lot of a lot of great stuff there. I think to unpack a, a couple things. One, you know, bureaucracy is a four-letter word, but you know, I want my nuclear power plants to be pretty bureaucratic, right? Yeah. Like you want heavily regulated places in certain parts of the things that surround us. And so I don't think bureaucracy is always a four-letter word, but I, I agree with your point there. And I also think that some of what you're naming is situational leadership that we're yes. going to need to show up differently based on the context. And, you know, it links a little bit to this culture conversation we're having because almost every place I've ever touched doesn't have just one culture. There's always microcultures that are formed based on the location, based on the function. And leaders, some leaders are very adaptable to flex their style based on sort of what they need in the moment. Some leaders aren't. But I also think it's worth recognizing that based on microcultures or different businesses, et cetera, you know, the leaders are going to look different. So, you know, at the at the NFL and, and all sports league, the, the person that's responsible for, you know, governing player conduct or governing the CBA is going to look a lot closer to the type of person that you would see work in the U.S. Senate than the person that works out in L.A. that runs the digital media business, which is a person that's mm -hmm. going to look a lot like somebody that works in Facebook. And so, you know, those specific jobs may not have touch points frequently, although they do, but there's a lot of jobs that have to equally influence both of those individuals. And so if if everything is a hammer to you, if every everything is a nail and all you got is a hammer, that's not going to work universally. And so I think recognizing who, what you're trying to accomplish, recognizing yourself, recognizing what tools you have in your tool belt that you can deploy is, is always a great leadership skill. And then this is where a little bit comes back to the diversity conversation we have, where sometimes the best way to deliver a message or accomplish something isn't yourself. It's somebody in your team or through a proxy or through some other avenue. And so, you know, we talk about seeing the system political acumen, a big piece of that is just understanding the entire environment, understanding what's motivating other people, understanding what's going to influence them and looking at what are your tools, 
that you've got at your disposal, people or otherwise, that's going to best achieve your your outcome. So, and again, it starts, there's a sort of link of self-awareness that is accumulated through feedback, which is linked to political acumen, which is linked to sort of understanding culture and environment that becomes this, you know, whole whole connected circle that, you know, maybe after this podcast, I'll go off and sketch out a framework and try to publish something. Yeah. Well, there's another challenge. It's coming to me in this moment. Another challenge I see is I've actually worked at companies where feedback is solicited, like the partners or the the higher ups, the executive level are genuinely seeking feedback and will say, I don't know, send out an anonymous survey that asks pretty tailored specific questions. And I would posit that the, the leaders at the company were really open to feedback. And there is a, a lot of times in my experience, there's been a lack of response rate. And so I'm wondering if that is something that you've brushed up against in in any way in in your working life or even in your personal life where maybe you're open to feedback, you're seeking feedback. Has there been challenges in getting good feedback and and what have been some ways that you've been able to, I guess, brush past that? Like what are some ways you're actually able to get the feedback where you're open and like, I really want it, but maybe people aren't giving it. Yeah. Probably two ways to think about that. One is trying to get feedback at scale across an entire organization, you know, when you're doing employee surveys or focus groups or things like that. And, you know, the response rates sometimes can be pretty low. So I've had clients I worked with where we only got a 50% response rate on the survey. And my my reaction is, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Like, you know, you know, it's got to be 80 plus to sort of have some sense that you're speaking to everybody. And the client was thrilled the 50% answered the survey. And I'm sort of looked at him like, oh my gosh, like we've got a lot of work to do. If that's sort of a bar that we think is acceptable. And there's a lot of reasons that are, would all be individual context around why employees either wouldn't have the time or the sense of safety to express their point of view. And then depending upon their response rate, you really have to calibrate intensity levels and what's sort of somewhat universally true versus what's just very positive or or less positive interest groups in there. So it just, it makes it challenging. And so I think then it gets to a little bit of marrying up some information solicitation at scale with individual focus groups or individual storytelling to understand, trying to explain sort of maybe some of the broader dynamics that might be going on and then coming up with a a game plan for that. Interestingly, when I do my coaching work and, and soliciting one-on-one feedback from from executives or peers or a boss, obviously, depending upon where the person sits, you're going to have an assumed level of transparency. You know, bosses are generally always going to be pretty transparent. Peers, a little less so. Direct reports, depending upon how long they've worked with them and what the relationship is, even less so. And you know, in this day of you know Zoom, you know, having these conversations, we're trying to establish rapport and trying to ensure people that everything is going to be anonymous and that nothing will ever be played back in a way that anything could be personally identifiable. You know, I've had people that believe me, and you could tell that you're giving they're giving me everything that they've got. And you know, sometimes the transparent the feedback is so transparent that you're like, okay, like this person is really is definitely emptying the bucket. And sometimes you just can tell, even to my best attempts to try to make them comfortable and understand how this is used, and they give you nothing. And so the it's and it, some of that I'm not going to solve overnight. But what it does do though is then inform 
the the information that gets shared with a client. So it's never that Sally sort of you know only gave me five minutes of her time. It's listen, I I got a sense from a number of people that there was more to share that they weren't sharing. Some of the meetings ran short, and it wasn't sort of isolated with any particular group of people, and it wasn't universal, but it was something that I noticed. What do you think about that? And sort of a you know, and if a client has entered coaching with the right perspective and right intent. They're not going to be going to you know start interrogating people who only had a five minute meeting with Mike. It's going to be you know create a, a level of curiosity to try to unpack and again see the system, see the unintended consequences of a, a leader's behavior. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned at one point your doctoral program at Vanderbilt, and in preparation for the interview, I I like to ask what's one question that you would love to be asked and. The one that you wrote was, what's the biggest insight you've learned from your doctoral program at Vanderbilt? And you might have already shared that. It was a it was a powerful framework that you've picked up there. But I imagine you've learned a lot of things at your doctoral program. And so I'd be curious to hear what is the biggest insight? And you can share more than one if there are. But what are what what has been the biggest insight you've learned? Yeah, it's funny. I actually when you when you asked me that question, I gave you the question. I didn't sort of think about what my answer was going to be to my own question (laughs) until like literally this morning as I started sort of thinking about it. And one of the things I do, and this is very LinkedIn and I hate posting on LinkedIn, is at the end of every semester, I I publish my top three takeaways from that semester. And so, you know, when this podcast airs, I'm only going to have about six months to go and, you know, knock on wood, I'll have, I'll be over the, the goal line at that point. And I was went back on my LinkedIn and looked at, you know, what my takeaways were from a given semester and just tried to zoom out a little bit around sort of like, what is all this telling me? And what I think I've really taken away the most from this program is having the tools and the desire and the skills to just pay attention to people and situations in just a fundamentally different way you know, the the program, and I've got a story to share about that, but the program is about three pillars at Vanderbilt. It's how how leaders lead in different contexts, how people and organizations learn, which is, you know, fundamentally what coaching is. Coaching is getting someone or having someone learn a new behavior. So leadership and learning goes hand in glove with my coaching work. But then the third Temple is data and analytics. And so how to use data to actually, you know, support the first two, which, you know, satisfies my old finance brain. But one of the, the things I was thinking about is that when you when you really observe situations of people, you just come away with a different understanding and a different appreciation. And, and I, I recalled something that happened last summer that initially I thought, I can't believe this happened after I just learned it in class. And then I quickly realized, well, it wasn't coincidental that just happened in class. This happens all the time. And I now just noticed that it's happening. So the the situation was that my mom was having an issue with her local bank and tried to call the help desk and was getting frustrated and couldn't do what she wanted to do. And so she had me call the help desk, try to sort through it. And I didn't ask, but, you know, I would have presumed that the person on the other end of the phone was offshore. And so the conversation, the, the, the language and the flow of the conversation was just challenging from my perspective. I felt my temperature rising and it was unproductive and sort of left me really, really frustrated. And I ended up having drive down to Philadelphia two hours from my house to go with my mom to the local bank 
and sit there with a person in one of those little cubicle offices and establish a connection with the person. But that conversation was not much more productive. Like I could see firsthand the bureaucracy behind the scenes, what the person was dealing with, got up, left, totally pleasant, cheerful human being, but it just was not a very fun conversation. But, you know, my mom and I had a physical connection with this person that just dialed down the temperature and sort of you feel different about the experience, even though that person was dealing with the same bureaucracy and not giving me any better results. Pivot, literally the next week, I had an issue with my bank. I had to call the, the help desk and the, the person in the help desk, they answered the phone saying, I'm Sally from Texas, which I thought was such an interesting sort of move to instantly send a signal. You're not talking to someone offshore, you're talking to someone onshore. I have no idea whether Sally was from Texas or wherever. And the conversation wasn't productive, but I felt better about it, which is like sort of as I, you know, just was, I my temperature wasn't risen. It forced me to then go to my local bank again. And what's interesting is that I walked into the bank and I had an appointment and the, the person in front of me was an older white guy and really agitated with the black woman that was trying to serve him in sort of the cubicle, really agitated. And as I was sort of observing it, you had age, race, gender, power, roles, all in that conversation. And the at some point, the bank manager noticed the, what was going on. I mean, it was uncomfortable, me even sitting there watching this. Comes over, pulls the person aside, tries to take care of him. I go into this teller, since I'm up next, I could tell she was rattled. And I was like, listen, that's no way to start the day. I want you to know that this is going to be the easiest 30 minutes of your life. This is going to be a low stress for you. And so her accent was incredibly thick. I think she was from the Caribbean. Don't know for sure. Didn't ask. Didn't matter. But as I was sort of going into that conversation, I was imagining that if I was having this conversation on the phone, this would have been a challenging conversation mm -hmm. for me. And so the person was great, had we got helped, whatever. But zooming out, it like it just caused me to realize sort of this perspective that the person initially from my mom's bank that was offshore was dealing with the same bureaucracy that the local bank person was doing. I have no idea if the person on the help desk had previously just got off the phone with a, a caller that was killing them on the phone, just yelling at them and had them all frazzled. But because of my local bank, I could see it live and I could see sort of the dynamics that played out there. You know, it just, it just really had me pause and sort of take stock of the way people show up, the way people learn behaviors at an early age, the people, the way that systems of society shape what's acceptable behavior, what's not acceptable behavior, roles that were placed in based on society or function. And, you know, I guess I just seeing the field. So like this, yeah. the field, the, the, the takeaway from all this is that yeah. the field I'm now seeing is just so much more clear than it ever used to be. And my hope is that, you know, I get to sort of share, share that perspective and have clients see it the same way. Well, that's a, a beautiful story. And I, I really appreciate you saying that. Something that I aspire to is to to have that same level of awareness in every encounter that you have no idea what this person has been through in their life, their day, the 30 minutes before. Everyone is always going through, is bringing a, a unique set of experiences, circumstances into their life. And it's very easy for us to only be thinking about what we're wanting in, in the encounter and not thinking 
at all about what might be happening with the other person. And something that I am in the practice of and, and aspiring to, like I said, is even with emails where it can be anonymous, it can be really easy to like spout off some anger because there's 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 not really any accountability to it. There's not another human in front of me. I try and A, imagine the human that is on the receiving end or the sending end of the email that I'm getting. And B, if I'm really charged up about it in some way, to picture them as a child, picture them as, mm. say, a, a five-year-old. And that can really shift out the, it, it helps to see the field, like you were saying, that I have more of a connection to the humanity of the person that I'm interacting with and, and less mired in the the story or the narrative or the kind of charged reaction that I'm I'm having in the moment. And maybe that's not for everyone, but I have found that to be immensely helpful. And, and in some ways, that's what I'm hearing in your story is that understanding the totality of every human that you encounter, it it kind of creates enough distance that you're, I don't know, you're not so stuck on whatever the drama is in your life. And it's you, more ease and more acceptance of your circumstances, I guess, which allows you to be more innovative, more creative, more all of the good things. So yeah, what I'm hearing from you is that you're not going to go full warrior mode, you're going to do this like empathetic warrior <laughs> mode, I think, which is, is a good balance. But I think yeah. some of this is that having an assumption that everyone's doing their best. Yes, that, you know, that, you know, oftentimes we're the stars in our own movie and we're, we're sort of so self-consumed and our own focused on our own own issues. But everyone is doing their best and nobody's doing anything to you. It's just that things are happening around you yeah. and trying to have that perspective, I think, is is helpful because we all know that emotion drives a lot of the way we show up and a lot of decisions and actions we take. And oftentimes we use intellect and and reason to just justify the emotional state we're, that we're in. And so the more that we can be aware of that emotional state and then really be intentional around sort of the next step we take, I think is just a, a good foundational practice for, for all of us. Great articulation. So Mike, is there anything that we haven't discussed so far in, in today's conversation that you'd like to bring into the conversation now? Any topics that I, I didn't get to? I know we've had a already wide ranging discussion, but I'm here for anything else that feels alive for you that you'd want to talk about. No, I, I I thought this was this was great. One question for you, and I'm putting you on the spot without any prep, is <laughs> that you know this is Mike's Mike's search for meaning, and so not not you personally, but you know, how would you, how would you describe sort of common-ish themes that you've heard around how people are sort of defining meaning or you know, you've interviewed presumably dozens and dozens and dozens of, of great guests. I'm just curious, sort of, if you were to wrap it up, like, what have you learned? Mm. It's a beautiful question. It's one I, I think about a lot. So I have some things to say. Some people... I think my favorite answers around meaning are the guests who kind of deconstruct that it's, it's really individual, it's personal, and it's, it can be easy to, like, based on our conversation today, it's easy to prescribe that what's meaningful to me is, is what I think everyone should aspire to in their life. And 
So I think my favorite summation of all the answers is that it depends on the context. Sometimes a life of meaning is like being there for your sick grandparent and, and spending a, a month or two with them while they're really sick and recounting the life that they've had and unpacking what, what their life was like and understanding a little bit about your family history. Sometimes it is being in communities where you feel like you can totally be yourself and that you're accepted for who you are, regardless of how different you, you might feel or, or whatever the, the different experiences or different upbringing that you've had, like really being able to drop into, I feel safe being who I am. I think that there's an undercurrent of creating something. And, and by that, I mean, there's an inner work being done in, in people that are living what they deem to be a meaningful life. A lot of people talk about the inner work that they're doing, understanding who they are, their self-awareness, understanding the different systems that have influenced them. And from that place, being able to create something that is meaningful to them, being able to, so maybe a specific example is with Michael J. Fox, he went through a terrible, like, I don't think most people would ever, ever wish that them or a loved one would, would get Parkinson's disease. And he's been able to kind of reframe that in a way that he's making a difference for other people who have gone through Parkinson's. And in a lot of meaningful lives, there's taking the pain that you've been through in your own experience and creating something from like, I will help other people who are in that place of pain not go through that. Mothers Against Drunk Driving is is an example that comes to mind. So, and, and the namesake of the podcast, Man's Search for Meaning is, I mean, it's literally Viktor Frankl went through the Holocaust and was able to still see that the, a lot of the Nazis were people that were taking orders and they, they weren't quote unquote terrible people that uh, he was able to, in the midst of that, while being pulverized and his humanity was being squashed into a little tiny grain, he was still able to see the humanity of a lot of the Nazis and and connected to a, a bigger purpose than himself, that he was able to see, if I survive this, I have, I, I'm, I'm unfinished here. Like I have things that I'm up to. I, I want to educate other people about what it means to be alive and what purpose is. And so I, I guess it's a, a long-winded way of saying if you're connected to something bigger than yourself, if you're able to synthesize and process all of your life experiences and create something from that place, like that's that's been the theme of a lot of the I, I get the sense that a lot of people, there's a performative element, like I'm on a podcast, I need to say something great here, but the the truth of the matter has has been, you know, those those have been the main themes that I've seen. That's great stuff. That's great stuff. And I, I assume because I'm a guest, I get to reuse that thought liberally with my own clients and, and take it as my own. So, uh, but I appreciate all that. That was really, really great stuff. Yeah. And thank you for asking. I, I think one of the one of the fun parts of doing a podcast is there's a there's a level of trust of I, I don't know where this conversation is going. And so I, I had no idea you were going to ask, but I do. I, I love contemplating what it means to be alive. And, and that's why I created this podcast in the first place. That's great. Good stuff. Love it. So I, I just have a, a few more questions for you. And, and maybe I'll, I'll plant this seed in the back of your mind is that 
don't think you're off the hook. I'm going to ask you what a meaningful life is to you too, <laughs> which is all right. But at least you, at least you prep me that I've got a few seconds to, to think about it. Thank you though. Yeah. It's, it's the final question that I asked. So I, I'll, I'll get there and I still have a few more things that I want to run by you. So they are, they don't have to be short answers. They're kind of more general questions though, but rapid fire type of questions and would be very curious to hear what your answers are. So Something I think about a lot is my own personal definition of success. And mm. what what does success mean to you? It could be a definition. It could be a person that comes to mind immediately when you think of success. But what does success mean to you? I think it's about balance because I, you know, sometimes I'm in a, a philosophy class ethics class now in my program and my my answer might have been before i started that class happiness and i'm not sure the goal in life anymore is to really be happy because perpetual state of happiness actually isn't ultimately satisfying believe it or not because you have to go through some tough times to appreciate the happiness so i think a measure of balance and understanding all the different components of my life between my wife and my kids and my work and my friends and my coaching and my podcast and starting to play the guitar this year and just like having balance where I'm intentional around sort of everything I do is a state of success for me. And again, it's a journey, not a destination. And we know that, you know, if I'm at a 10 on the school scale, then there's a sacrifice with uh, family at that point. And you have to calibrate and recognize where you are and make sure that you're not getting overextended for too long a period of time. But if you find what the right, focus areas are in your life and have an aspiration of where you want them to be over time, then just pay attention to them and be intentional around caring about sort of how you're spending your time. Because at the end of the day, who we are is the sum of how we spend our time. And that probably is the way I'd answer that question. Mm. Beautiful. Are there, you've mentioned other people and, and other books that have been influential to you. Like you said, Angela Duckworth's Grit, Tony Dungy, maybe. Are there any other books, people, resources that have been influential in in as much as like they've influenced the way that you think or the way that you see the world or the way that you see yourself in any way? There's just so many, so, so many. I, I think that I stand on the shoulder of a lot of great bosses and mentors. And I think it's in some ways, again, it's obvious and also underestimated how much our bosses impact our trajectory in the workplace. Something like 70% of your experience is directly defined by your boss, regardless of how toxic a broader culture may be. And so, you know, starting with my parents to my siblings, to the bosses I've had, if I were to catalog every single person along the way around what I pulled from them, that would probably be the composite of the way I am showing up now. And I think that probably the message out of that, uh, rather than trying to name everyone, although that would make a great LinkedIn post if I named every single boss that I, <laughs> that I worked on, maybe I guess a lot of traction there. But the lesson I always also generally tell young people when they're starting their career or thinking about a job transition is don't focus on the company or the industry, focus on who your boss is going to be. Because, you know, especially in your early years, in your 20s, it's all about just finding out what you're good at and failing and growing and experimenting. And you need a boss that's going to allow you to do that. It's really then in your 30s when you're going to be putting those tools into work and developing expertise 
uh, and really getting recognized for your expertise to then ultimately try to make some money when you're 40s. So, you know, look at these things in a long view, but it really starts with having good bosses that are going to allow you to grow and develop and find your path. What is an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? That's a good one. I wish I'd listened to one of your podcasts so I could have actually prepped for the end of one of your podcasts to actually prep for the series of questions. An ordinary everyday moment. I think my wife and I have a routine at this point of just ending our day on the couch, watching whatever we're binging at that time with our two cats. And, you know, sometimes my one son's off at college now, my other son is still at home. Sometimes my other son will, you know, backbench and sort of be generally in the room. But my wife is also a coach as well. So we're sort of a coaching family and to just sort of sit there at the end of the day and, you know, you're in service to others all day long in, in the work that we do and to sit there at the end of the day to really just sort of make it about ourselves and uh, unwind is always sort of just a, it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice way to close the day. I know, I know I've been asking you some kind of they're tough questions at the end, and uh, I have a, a couple more for you. Where do you feel most unfinished or what your your edge that you're most exploring in your life right now? Believe it or not, it's actually being a good coach. So mm-hmm. like most coaches, I've got a coach. And so I've got a coach, you know, to continue with the spirit of diversity that is just fundamentally different than me, a much more experienced coach, PhD in organizational psychology. And he challenges me and we work on me being better at getting the client to the place where they want to be. You know, there's a lot of coaches that also are oftentimes advisors. And, you know, from my background, having seen a lot and done a lot, it's very easy for me to fall on the advisor side of that continuum as opposed to the coach side of the continuum. And the job of the coach in the most pure way is to not tell the answer, but to ask the right questions so the client arrives at the answer themselves, which again is actually fundamentally different than what a football coach is, if you think about it, where Bill Belichick is actually telling you what to do. So there's a little bit of a difference there. I think people sometimes walk into around what uh, leadership coaching is versus a, a football coach. But I've seen the growth of myself since I've been doing this over the last several years. But I also am self-aware enough when I get done a session and I'm documenting my notes where I've had opportunities where there was a powerful move I could have made with a question that I missed. And, you know, that's okay. Like, you know, uh, we're all unfinished products that are going to all be learning and growing. And at least understanding where those moves were will help inform hopefully the next time when the move is available. Well, I'll give you an easy one before the last hard one. Where where would you invite people to connect with you, to interact with your work? I've got a website, Huddle Advisory, you can check out, but you know, I'm on LinkedIn. So if there is someone that has a leadership challenge or a culture challenge that they would like to connect with, I'm happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, I'll link to that in the show notes. I'll link to the resources people mentioned in the show notes as well. You know what I probably should mention to my my co-host would really be mad at me for not mentioning is that unrelated to my coaching work is uh, we also have a, a sports podcast called Out of Our League, which is available on all the podcast platforms. It's two old sports executives talking about what's in the papers on a given week. Um, and so that's quite fun. Love it. And I'll, I'll make sure, of course, to link to that as well. 
So you know it's coming. The The final question that I ask in the interview, the podcast is called The Mic Search for Meaning. And so we, we get a two for one special today because I shared <laughs> I shared my own Mike's answer for meaning. And now I want to know what this Mike's answer is for what what constitutes a meaningful life to you. It's funny, the the answer a little bit is born out of when I left the NFL you know, when I started, you know, implementing a lot of coaching work at the NFL, I also just got access indirectly to a bunch of amazing, amazing coaches that we were using for our leaders. And on my way out, I remember one coach tell me when I was leaving, you know, take some time, really sort of recharge the battery, go take a trip by yourself. And so in January of 2020, you know, pre-pandemic, I went to Sedona, by myself, which is a tr- nothing I've, I've never taken a trip by myself and biked and hiked and sort of walked the earth out in that beautiful part of the country just to try to sort of just think. And the concept of, you know, it's not about me anymore. It's about, you know, I stood on a lot of people's shoulders in order to get where I was. And now it's time to really maximize the number of people that can stand on my shoulders at this point, which is what led me into coaching. And it's this mindset and philosophy of it's now time to pay it forward to the next generation of leaders is what drives me and it seeking out people that really are coachable that really are wanting to be open transparent and they're going to need to be resilient because we know this is hard work to open up yourself like that and helping them find the path of where they are to where they want to be it's pretty satisfying and I think now that is how I define meeting is, am I spending my days paying it forward to the next generation? And again, that's not going to be every moment of every day, but when I look back on my day and look back on my week, that's going to be the preponderance of the moments. And that's, that's for me, that's what meaning is. Mm. And it, it ties very closely to what you said about success as well. That kind of balance of doing, doing all these things that matter to you. And living each day like like that's what you know really prioritizing those values. So, Mike, thank you very much for spending two plus hours of your time with me and exploring your life's work and and really who you are as well. It it really quenched my hunger for my my appetite for talking about sports in, in a way that I I haven't in a long time. And the connection between leadership and sports and you're you're bringing such a an interesting lens to executive coaching. And you have lots of different, we didn't even talk really about your experience at Deloitte and at NBC, but your perspective is, I I find it to be really helpful. And I I really, really enjoyed this conversation. We talked about so many different elements about what it means to be alive in, in today's world. And there were really powerful stories, especially with regard to the bank teller and understanding perspectives at the end there. So uh, I really trust that the listeners are going to get a lot from these two mics collaborating on uh, this conversation today and and really appreciate you taking the time to join. Well, thank you. And uh, the feeling was definitely mutual. I learned a ton as well and hope people can get something from the conversation. And I'm quite sure that they will. I really trust they will. So to all the listeners, thank you for joining. I hope that you have a good rest of your day or evening. I hope that you, in your next interaction, especially if it's a challenging one, that you assume positive intent on the other end and take good care. Lots of love.
Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.